Welcome back to Death Walks With Us. I'm your host, Angela. Today's episode is the second part of the three-part series on the Night Stalker. First off, apologies for being late. I needed a little bit more time because after my last episode, I decided to reactivate my Netflix account and I watched the documentary they had on the Night Stalker. I will say, some of their information did not match the information I had. I'm not going over it, but most of it wasn't significant to change anything. It just shows that there is so much different information, even on a case that is decades old. One other thing. I cannot promise to have an episode up by a certain date, nor can I promise to have the next episode up on a series within a few days. I will release at least one episode a week, sometime between Monday and Sunday. That is all I can promise from now on. I am trying, but I have never done a podcast before, and it can be hard. To me, this is a hobby, so other life stuff comes first. And I want to do the best that I can. And there is so much to this case that I did not realize. Well, with that being said, let's get to it. Last episode, we left off with the sheriff identifying the night stalker as Richard Ramirez. So this episode, we will discuss who was Richard Ramirez. And I'm going to try to show how this serial killer was made, how it wasn't really nature, but how it was mostly nurture that created a monster. Born in El Paso, Texas, to Julian and Mercedes Ramirez, Richard was the youngest of five. He had three brothers and one sister. His father, Julian, was born in Mexico His mother died when he was 12, and he was raised primarily by his father and grandfather. He was the second born, but the eldest male, and a lot fell on his shoulders once his mother died. His family believed in corporal punishment, and his father, Jose, would beat him severely, just like his father had beaten him, who would also beat Julian. I mean, beat, not discipline. The one example I read was that one time Julian overslept when he should have been working, so his father tied him to a tree and beat him with a rope. Julian got the most beatings because he was the eldest male. Jose took his anger out on the children. At 14, Julian took the belt away and told him he was no longer beating him. In 1944, this was a crime punishable by death in that area of Mexico. Surprisingly, this was not an uncommon law. Other countries have had similar laws. A parent could beat their child to death, but if that child defended themselves and accidentally killed their parent, that child could get an automatic, would get an automatic death sentence. Anyways, The Ramirez went to church every Sunday, and Julian believed in the virtues of Christ and, by accounts, didn't smoke, seal, curse, and rarely ever drank alcohol. Because he was needed on the farm, he only got to attend school to the first grade. Education was a luxury his family couldn't afford. Mercedes was born in Colorado came back to Mexico because her mother did not want her sons drafted for World War II. 
To her, governments were corrupt, and she did not want her sons dying for a corrupt government. At 19, Julian and Mercedes married. Julian did not want violence in his home. Julian was excited when his children were born, and he was a dotting father when they were first born, even with their multiple health issues. According to many accounts, all their children had birth defects. They had moved to the United States and lived in El Paso, Texas. This is extremely important to their story. They lived about 200 miles away from where they were testing nuclear bombs on land in New Mexico. In the early stages of nuclear development, they supposedly did not know how far the radiation could go, nor the full extent of the damage it could do, especially to developing fetuses. Babies in El Paso, along with many other areas, were being born with birth defects. The fallout was getting into the air and drinking water, which caused it to get into the food. Animals consumed these harsh pollutants, and that built up in their flesh. Their first son, Reuben, was born with lumps on his neck, and they thought he was going to die, but he did not. The second son, Jose, Joseph, named after Julian's brother, not his father, at first appeared to be healthy. At the time, doctors did not understand what was happening to these babies, but some suspected it was nuclear fallout. By one, Joseph was in pain and the doctor discovered his bones were not growing proper. A doctor diagnosed him with Collar's disease, and it was believed it was a result of the nuclear fallout and radioactivity. It is alleged that Julian discovered that the government knew and was keeping children in camps in Arizona to hide them from the public. Even though they were living in the U.S. and Mercedes was a U.S. citizen, Julian did not get his papers, and one day he was picked up by immigration when they did a raid on his job site. They did not care that his wife and children were American citizens and took them all and their belongings and dumped them on the other side of the border. Those southern states used to be part of Mexico, so Mexicans have lived there longer than the state was part of America, but they didn't care. Their son, Robert, was born in Mexico and at first appeared to be healthy. Julian was able to get his papers and become an American citizen, so they were able to move back to America. Julian got a job working on the railroad where he became extremely strong, and Mercedes got work in a factory applying toxic chemicals to boots with no ventilation or mask. At the time, they did not realize how toxic these chemicals were. She would get dizzy spells and need to sit. She also came pregnant with her fourth child, a daughter named Ruth, who appeared to be healthy at birth. Mercedes and her sister, who worked at the factory, noticed that on the weekends they would become irritable and anxious, but it would disappear once they went back to work on Monday. They were addicted to the fumes. One of the fumes was, is called Tulen, T-O-L-U-E-N-E, -E, and this has been associated with conjunctal malformation and postnatal developmental retardation.
It's important to note the Julian sister moved to El Paso with her son Miguel, who would be inseparable from Ruben for a time. Julian was very easygoing, but when he got angry, it would be a blind rage, and he would break things and punch the walls. The children had the same rage, and Ruth said it was blackout rage, and when she got into it, her brothers knew to stay away from her. Now, Mercedes' last pregnancy with Richard was four years after Ruth and was a difficult pregnancy. Fumes from the factory did not make it easier, nor the standing for her whole shift. She had to see a specialist where she got shots to keep the pregnancy because she was at extreme risk for miscarriage. I don't know what shots she was getting, what drugs they gave her to help with her pregnancy, but I know during the 50s and the 60s, there were certain drugs that women were prescribed to help with nausea and to prevent miscarriages that caused extreme birth defects. These drugs weren't tested on humans. They had been just tested on animals. And when I say humans, I should say they never did any tests on pregnancies and pregnant women's and the long-term effect. Um, one, um, the initial, I don't even know how to say them, but the initials is D-E-S and it caused birth defects. Anyways, all that matters is in the wound, her baby's development was being destroyed by these toxicities that she was breathing in. According to studies that I will post in the show notes, prenatal drug exposure affects serotonin and dopium. Drug exposure contributes to the deregulation of key chemical neurotransmitters, those that serve important functions in the coordination of the human brain and behavior. Not only drug exposure, but a mother's stress level can impact fetal brain growth. So in utero, Richie had pollution and stress impacting the development of his brain. Born at 2.07 a.m. on leap year in 1960 was the baby that would be named Ricardo, whose sister, Ruth, adored him. He was her baby. Now, even though Julian wanted to keep violence out of his home, it was how he was raised and what he knew. The eldest, Reuben, had behavioral problems, most likely due to toxicity from in the wound. At school, if he did not do good, their father would beat him with a water hose. The father saw education as a way up for his children. Reuben just didn't care. Beating a child to get them to care ain't going to work. Joseph had a hard time, but he tried. He missed school because of his bones and the operations he had to fix them. Robert had a learning disability, most likely from absorbing toxicity while in utero. He would get beat, too, for not doing good in school. At a young age, Reuben began to sniff glue easy to do when parents had to work just for them to survive. This would lead to marijuana and eventually harder drugs for Reuben. Julian had a violent temper and he did not always take it out on his children. According to both Ruth and Joseph, Julian would get mad more so at objects than people. 
They reported that he would bash his head when angry. One time he smashed it into a wall, another time took a hammer and would smash his head until he was bloody. At two, Richard climbed a dresser and it fell on him, knocking him unconscious and leaving a gash on his forehead that needed 30 stitches. The babysitter said it, he was unconscious for 15 minutes and the doctor said he had a concussion. Richard was a hyperactive child and the babysitter, who was only watching him, wanted to watch TV and ignored him. Another time, when Richard was five, he went to the playground and ran towards Ruth, who was on a swing. Having no time to stop, she collided with Richard, knocking him out and putting a gash on him that required stitches. These are head injuries that can impact a developing brain. Head injuries to the frontal lobe can impact empathy and self-control. One in four serial killers have had head injuries as a child. The first time Ruben got arrested for stealing a car, he had been with his cousin Miguel, who's also called Mike. Julian picked him up at the police station and started slapping him there. Julian had been a police officer in Mexico and it disgraced the family name getting arrested. Once home, he unleashed his furry onto Ruben and beat him merciless. He was black and blue all over terrifying the other children. Witnessing that violence can be very traumatic for children and can alter their brains. Their brains are developing. Now, Reuben's second arrest for burglary, he got a worse beating as Julian was enraged. Then Robert started sniffing glue and getting arrested, so he got beat as well. Julian was also away a lot working on the railroad, which increased his strength, making the beatings worse. Some sources say there was a lot of physical violence in that home. One documentary, an expert, said something like, I'm not going to suggest there was child abuse, but certainly there was physical violence. Mm, okay, violence in the home is child abuse. Leaving bruises on your child because you cannot control your anger is child abuse. He described child abuse, but yet he refused to call it for what it was. <sighs> there are also sources that say Richard began to sleep in a nearby cemetery to escape his father's violence, which at one point his father had allegedly tied him to a cross and left him in the cemetery overnight as a form of punishment. I'm sorry, but that is cruel and barbaric to do to a child. Children get scared easily, and then to leave him in a cemetery overnight? But still, even with that being done to him, Richard did find peace there in the cemetery late at night by himself. Now, as we discuss Richard's childhood, I think it's important to kind of examine the question of why don't serial killers' siblings grow up to be serial killers since they all grow up in the same environment? Birth order does play a huge factor in a person's experiences, and since they are different ages, how the environment affects their development will be different. Plus, exposure to pollutants may or may not occur. Richard's case, he was born four years after his youngest eldest sibling. And 
the longer a person is in a toxic environment, the more it builds up in their body, passing it on to fetuses when they get pregnant. Also, head injuries. Like I'd already said, one in four serial killers had a head injury as a child. Another major factor is interpersonal relationships with peers. Richard did not have friends as a child and often played by himself. Building relationships with peers can counter the negative influence from parents. Many serial killers were loners as children. This doesn't mean a child who likes to be alone is going to grow up to be a serial killer. There are many other factors. Those accepted by peers have lower behavioral problems. There is importance in friendships, and this can help explain why siblings from violent homes don't all grow up to be murderers. And in this case, Richard did not have peers when he was a child. He did not get to enjoy the benefit of play. There is power in play. Kids use play as a way to work through feelings, fears, and issues. Then in the fifth grade, Richard started having seizures. He would have grand mal seizures and he was taken to the hospital. The doctor said he would grow out of them and did not put him on medication. He also showed signs of having petite mal seizures as his sister Ruth said he would just stare into space for 5 to 15 minutes. One source said that the petite mal seizures caused him to hallucinate at 7 and see monsters. One thing Richard had going for him was being on the football team and he did exceptionally well as a quarterback, but then they had to throw him off the team for having a seizure at a game. That's not the coach's fault. You cannot risk that with children. The doctors knew a medicine Richard could have been on, but they did not give him it. Now, middle childhood is also a very important age for brain development. This is the time when the brain is fine-tuning itself and I'm going to quote from an article that I will post in the notes. Is a sensitive period for neurodevelopment, for it will have profound and long-lasting influence on the brain, meaning unhealthy development can stunt the development of empathy, altruism, and morality. This is important with as his cousin Miguel enters his life and his actions would have impacted Richard's development. But not only that, Richard had begun to sniff glue and smoke pot before 12 years old. These are not healthy things for a developing brain. It is a form of escapism. 30% of serial killers have used some substance before 13 as a form of escapism. Others would escape into their own worlds, their fantasies. 64% begin to escape into violent fantasies. Richard had extreme violent fantasies, and yes, he was part of the study that will be posted in the notes. Around 12, his cousin Miguel, Mike, returned home from the Vietnam War, a war hero, earning four medals as a Green Beret, but he returned emotionally damaged. Richard believed Mike to have had 29 known kills. Due to Julian's violence, his oldest sons had moved out, leaving just Richard. Reuben had moved to L.A. Mike had married a woman named Jessica, and they had two sons together. 
While his siblings were starting to be active in the Chicana movement, Richard hung out with Mike, frequently hearing his tales of his sadistic brutality against women. Mike would discuss his violence towards Vietnamese women and show Richard photos of women in Vietnam. These were photos of Mike raping these women. In one series of photos, he is raping a woman and then the last holding her decapitated head. He objectified these women to Richard. Richard got aroused looking at these photos. This is a delicate age, and he associated sex with violence. He was fusing sex and violence together. Mike also taught Richard the ways of war. He taught him how to fight, how to use a gun in a combat stance, and how to move silently. According to Richard's niece, Mike would get animals and show Richard how to slit their throats to bleed out. Mike talked about his power over life and death and war, and how it made him feel godlike. At 13 or at 12, different ages and different sources, Richard watched his cousin Mike shoot his wife Jessica in the head, killing her. After arguing about him getting a job, Mike did not want to work. He just wanted to hang out with Richard and smoke pot all day. When you have two kids, that's not really an option, and Jessica had every right to nag him. He had the option of working or leaving. He chose and said to shoot her. That day, he had the gun in the fridge to keep it cool, and when he started arguing with Jessica, he pulled it out. She did not think he would and did dare him, so he shot her. The violence would have further traumatized Richard's developing brain. It would have normalized violence to that developing brain. Here is how Mike's status as a vet helped him. He was a violent man who loved killing women, and the jury being sympathetic to him as he had been in combat and did not get therapy found him to be insane and sent him to the state's mental institution. He was released after four years. This man loved to kill women, and they were there for his pleasure. He knew what he was doing. He had sent Richard home and told him not to tell anyone he was there. That showed planning, something an insane person would not be able to do. This shows that he knew that it was wrong, and that's why he told Richard to stay. He wasn't there. Yes, I do believe his mental status played a huge factor in killing his wife, but not because he was insane because he felt entitled to do what he wanted and not to be reminded of his responsibilities. If he wasn't a sadistic fuck who tortured, raped, and slaughtered innocent women in Vietnam, I might have more sympathy towards him, but I don't. War does not excuse rape and brutality. This guy, if he was insane, four years was not enough. He should be locked up forever. People like him should be removed from society. They can be locked up forever in a mental institution, getting treatment that they need, but they are a danger to society. Anyways, Mike had taught Richard a lot of things that helped create a successful monster. He taught him how to fight, and he taught him how to shoot. Richard had learned to sneak into people's homes and steal. He would bring the stuff to Mike, who would fence them for him. 
But Mike wasn't the only one who taught Richard the skills he used to terrorize L.A. Now, Richard began to change after witnessing this murder. Reuben had moved to L.A. with his wife, and Richard went to visit him in the summer of his 13th year. Reuben supported himself by odd jobs and stealing other people's property. He taught Richard how to be more stealth-like when he broke into people's homes. Richard learned that stealing other people's property that they had worked hard for themselves was an easy way to gain. He also would enter many porno places as his height made him appear older and he would watch violent bondage filled pornos. It is important to note that Richard was fascinated by sex. He was masturbating to images of women he saw. He was developing a dark obsession of violence and bondage of women. At 13, Richard moves in with his sister Ruth and her husband. She had married Roberto as a way to get out from living under her father's roof. This man was sex crazed and was a peeping Tom. He would bring Richard with him on his nightly peeping rounds. Richard began to break into people's homes while they slept, just because he could. Richard also began experimenting with hallucinogenic drugs. This was about the time that Richard stopped caring about his personal hygiene. At 15 or 17, depending on the source, Richard got a job at the Holiday Inn and was given a master key. He would use it to sneak into rooms while the guests were asleep. He would listen at the door till he heard signs of them sleeping. Then he would enter and crawl around the floor using a pen light if he needed light. This freaks me out. I always use the security lock on the door when I stay at hotels. I did stay at a hotel once that did not have the security lock and the neighbors were having a party and people kept coming to our room. So I piled furniture in front of the door and didn't sleep well. What he did has always scared me that it would happen to me. And then I read this and it just kind of really freaked me out even more. Anyways, one day Richard decided he wanted to have one of the women he was spying on and entered a room and hid in the closet. When this woman left the bathroom, he jumped her from behind, tied her up and tried to rape her. But at that moment, her husband came back to the room and beat Richard unconscious. They lived out of state and refused to come back to testify in court. And because a person has a constitutional right to confront their accusers, charges were dropped. Richard told his family she had invited him in and when her husband returned, he went berserk and attacked him. And of course they believed him. People don't want to believe that their loved ones are capable of violent crimes. So let's recap a little bit here. Richard has been taught since a very young age sex and violence go together and how to break into people's homes slept-like as a way to be able to steal valuables while the owner slept. He was taught how to be a proficient burglar. At 17, Richard did see a girl, but she couldn't give him what he wanted. He wanted what he saw in pornos and magazine, sadism and bondage. It fueled him. Either at 17 or 18 or 
1222, depending on the source, Richard moved to California and became a part of the dark underside of L.A. Richard didn't really get that many friends. He was described as a loner, and he kept to himself. Richard did become addicted to cocaine, and he quickly moved from snorting it to injecting it. This was when cocaine was a very expensive habit, and Richard committed multiple burglaries to be able to support his habit. Richard also began to steal cars to learn the extensive road system of L.A. County. Richard's first um, actual rape happened because of drugs. It's not the drug's fault. He's just sadistic. He was approached on the street to buy angel dust, PCP, by a woman. After he got some for her, they went back to her apartment and smoked it. Richard hit on her, but she rejected him because she was into women, not men. Richard did not like being rejected, so when they finished the drugs and she asked him to leave, he just hid in the apartment building, sneaking back into her apartment when she was asleep. He bound and repeatedly raped her. Now, Richard had been a Catholic, but he eventually developed a personal relationship with Satan. Because of his religion, Satan had always been a force there, but it was changing. I guess you could say he started studying Satanism. He went to Aton Levine's Satanic Church and read his books. During a ceremony, he had to leave because he felt Satan's presence and Satan's ice-cold hand touching him. While he's Getting deeper into Satanism, Richard was arrested for stealing a car, and while in jail, he met another Satanist who taught him more about Satan, like that though through Satanism, you can murder and not feel guilty about it. So anyways, after being released, he fell more into drugs and became more withdrawn from humans. He ate too many sweets, which combined with his drug addiction caused his teeth to rot and caused him pain. He stopped caring even more about his personal hygiene and started getting that distinct leathery smell that his victims would describe. Concerns over Richard, Ruth came to L.A. trying to get him to come back to El Paso, but Richard refused. He told her not to worry about him. Satan was protecting him. I just gotta say this quote about Richard's friend. His only true friend was the devil himself. Anyways, Richard slept in cars and hotels, and one major one he slept in was the Cecil Hotel. Richard may be a loner, but he did have some friends. He would travel to San Francisco to visit with his friend Donna Myers. Uh, they became friends when they both lived in El Paso. Her son-in-law described him as polite and one of those people you can tell from looking at them that they won't stick up for themselves. He probably said that to weaken the power Ramirez had and maybe to minimize his role in weaponizing a monster as this man taught Richard more burglarizing skills, more ways to be quiet and stuff like when breaking in. Anyways, Richard would give Donna jewelry and he gave her some of the items he stole from the homes, as well as his family members. Now we are up to the murders in Richard's timeline. In the last episode, I had discussed the murders. Now I'm going to discuss a few things that I left out of the first part concerning the murders. 
Richard abducted children from their homes and sexually assaulted them, and then would abandon them at different locations. One of those children has come forward and has publicly made her identity known. The detectives saw great strength in her for her wanting to make sure he never hurt another little girl like her again. In one documentary, she explained how when he came into her home and took her, she felt like there was a familiarity in him. It was night and dark, and he probably was very gentle with taking her, but he hurt her. He violated her, but was kind enough to take her to the bathroom. The way she described it, it would seem like he was ashamed of his actions, but he still did it anyways. Once he was done, he dropped her off at his store and told her to go in and tell the clerk to call 911 and her parents would come get her. There's more details about this in the Netflix documentary if you want to watch it. Now let's talk about Satan. When Richard was committing these horrific murders, he felt Satan was with him and would protect him as long as he stayed evil in his heart. He could not show any mercy. And after Dale and Veronica's murders, he began to believe that the more vicious his assaults, the more Satan would be pleased. Killing sexually charged him. I mentioned last episode how, unbeknownst to the police, the killer stopped doing cocaine as killing was his new high. Ramirez believed he was protected by Satan, but cocaine also could cause him to make a mistake and get caught, so he stopped. This shows he wasn't insane. An insane person who does not understand their actions don't take preventative measures to not get caught. Ramirez wasn't insane. As much as people would love to explain him away as being insane, he wasn't. He got enjoyment out of causing pain to others. Like I said, killing humans became his new high. As Ramirez said, it's like nothing else. You can't explain its intensity in words to have that power over life. Nothing is more sexually exciting. It's the ultimate, something very few experience. I know, disgusting. Anyways, back to Satan. Real quick, I don't know why, but it kind of struck me. I don't know why it did, but it was that he would pray to Satan before he entered into a home. Uh, his prayers were like, Satan, this, what I, your humble servant, am about to do, I do for you. Another one, by all that is evil, I, your humble servant, evoke Satan to be here and accept this offering. <sighs> Anyways, Richard knew the police. The best of the police were out looking for him, but he did not care. He truly thought Satan was with him, protecting him from the police. He was confident that he would be protected as long as he followed the ways of Satan. Now, I need to bring us back to the assault on 16-year-old Whitney Bennett, the victim he beat with a tire iron and left in her bed, who woke up and did not know what happened. Richard planned to kill her and her whole family, but something stopped him. He did his routine of checking who was there in the house and decided to kill Whitney first. He wanted to kill her with a knife because it's personal, but no knife in the house pleased him. So he went back to her room, beat her with the tire and iron, and then grabbed her telephone cord and wrapped it around her throat to strangle her to death. But... He saw blue sparks on the wire, 
taking her life, and then he saw a blue haze leaving her body as she died, and that caused him to stop, to which she sucked in a breath. This spooked the shit out of him, and he laughed. He thought the power of Christ had saved Whitney. He didn't know if his power from Satan was weaning or not. So, for not getting any satisfaction, he went for a prostitute. He had a foot fetish, and the one he found laughed in his face, so at least he got no release that night. I think at this point, Ramirez was suspected of killing 13 and attacking 10 others. He was a narcissist. He felt entitled to use people for his own gratification. The police now knew his identity, that of Richard Ramirez, and they needed to find him. This was about where we left off in part one when the Night Stalker was identified as Richard Ramirez. Richard had gone to Tuscan to visit his brother Robert. He wasn't able to get a hold of Robert and seeing undercover police arriving in the bus terminal, he decided to head back to LA. At this point, he did not know that he had been linked to the Night Stalker case and that the police were actually there looking for him as they knew he had a brother in Tuscan and they were watching the arriving, but not the departing buses. Richard dropped his Walkman and lost the batteries, so he was not able to listen to the news on his way back to LA. He arrived back in LA roughly at 7.25 a.m., not knowing that his face was over almost every single newspaper's front page. Back in LA, he exited the bus and noticed the undercover police who were there watching the outgoing buses not the incoming buses, for him. He left quickly and went to get something to eat. Depending on the source, either he went to a liquor store for coffee and pastry, or he went to a convenience store, or he went to an East LA bodega to get breakfast. Whatever place he went to, he was immediately recognized. Most are consistent that it was two old women who saw him pointing at him. They started saying, El Matador, over and over, which meant the killer in Spanish. He was confused until he looked down and saw the paper that had his face identifying him as the Night Stalker. He grabbed the paper and left. The store owner called the police and they dispatched multiple units and helicopters. He ran. He ran across a multi-lane highway and kept running. He ran probably about two or three miles. He got on a bus, but the people recognized him. There was no escape. Everyone knew who he was. He got off the bus and decided to steal a car to get to Mexico. He spots a woman waiting outside a grocery or bakery store as her boyfriend is inside getting breakfast to go for them. He tries to force her out of the car and she starts screaming. Her boyfriend and a man from a barber shop run to her aid. Richard bolts and runs. By now, he had entered a Mexican-American neighborhood whose citizens were angry that the Night Stalker was a Mexican-American like them. Richard was on the lookout for a way out, for a car. He sees a woman named Angela in her car who was headed to the store to get candles for a four-year-old daughter's birthday. He tries to force her out of the car and she is fighting him. Her neighbors hear her screaming, El Matador, and run to her aid. Her friend, who was with her, goes and gets Angela's husband. He rushes to her aid and grabs a metal bar on his way. He begins to chase the Night Stalker.
Richard is running for his life now, but the neighborhood starts chasing him as he is running, word is spreading, and people are leaving their houses, joining the chase. Richard keeps turning around and hissing at the growing crowd. They catch him and beat him. The police arrive and they have to save Richard from the crowd. The police confirm who he is and the news spreads. In a photo of Richard's arrest, you can see that he's dressed in black with a black Jack Daniels shirt on that is all covered in blood. The arrest actually happens in the sheriff's department's jurisdiction, but the LAPD had been the first to arrive and arrested Ramirez. And instead of taking him to the station of the jurisdiction they were in, like they should have, they took him to an LAPD station so that they could get the glory of his arrest. But it had not been the police who caught him. It was angry Mexican-Americans who captured the Night Stalker and deserved the credit for taking him off the streets. Carlia did not care that the LAPD had him. He knew he would be under the sheriff's department soon enough. He was happy the man who drove his family out of their home was finally caught. At the police station, they checked his shoes, but he had gotten rid of them. As he followed his nightmare on the news and saw the press conference in San Francisco where the mayor exposed the sheriff's office evidence and he had a different size 11 and a half shoes on, they needed to find other evidence. Police officers were in the interrogation room with him, not talking with him, just watching and documenting anything he said till the detectives could get there. Richard was confessing and saying that they should kill him until he noticed they were writing everything down and then he stopped talking. His demeanor surprised them. He was very soft-spoken and Richard thought he could fool investigators because he was aligned with Satan. When the detective walked in, Richard Ramirez said, you are Frank Salerno. He had worked the hillside strangler case and Richard had followed it. Sonero was taken back. I guess it probably spooked him finding out this killer knew who he was. Ramirez knew serial killer history. Richard would not confess to them, but he did agree to talk to them about the Night Stalker case, as if he was like consulting with them about it. But at this point, thousands of people had gathered outside the police station and were demanding Richard be handed over to them. But of course, they couldn't do that. They did need to transport him to jail, where he did need medical treatment for the injuries the crowd had given him. So they had to have a big police presence to keep him safe. But the detectives also had to keep him safe from the police as they were extremely angry as well for what he had done to their communities and families. As they were transporting him, a woman got on a car and flashed them her breast. Richard thinking it was for him, the police thinking it was for them. They went through his belongings. They got a bag he had discarded while running and another bag that he kept in a locker at the bus station. They found a revolver and different ammunition, some being 22 caliber cartridges. They also found a tub of Vaseline. They were compared to the various shells and bullets from different crime scenes and they matched. His fingerprints were on the items confirming they were his items. Survivors were able to pick him out of a lineup along with picking out stolen items that he kept. People were relieved of him being caught and different civic groups including the mayor honored the people who helped catch Ramirez. 
Of course, his lawyer was angry, as that would ensure he wasn't going to get a fair trial. And then there was Doreen, who, upon seeing Richard's face on the news, fell in love with him and was angered by these actions that she believed these people to be criminals and that they should be charged, not honored. But we will discuss the craziness of this woman and the other women in the next episode. I am ending it here. The last part in this three-part series, we, I will discuss a little bit of the trial and then his cult-like status. I can't tell you when exactly this the next episode will be up, but it should not be longer than a week, most likely up by Sunday. Oh, one last thing. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Um, I do have a TikTok, but I haven't posted anything. And a big thank you to all my listeners who have been very supportive and for those who keep sharing my podcast. Thank you. 